geckos live in Hawaii. They shouldn't really, but they're definitely there to stay. Welcome to Herpetological Highlights with your hosts Tom Major and Ben Marshall. Uh, I'm Tom Major, the other guy who you'll hear soon is Ben Marshall. And this episode we're going to be talking about Hawaiian geckos. A place that shouldn't have geckos, but yet has geckos. They're not Hawaiian in origin. They're not Hawaiian in origin. Every gecko on Hawaii is an interloper, which has been brought there by human means. And uh, this Maybe is actually a pa- dropped them off. I don't think we're talking about any natural dispersals. There was some suggestion there was a natural dispersal of um, Emoya impar, which is a ground-dwelling skink, which has subsequently gone extinct. Oh, no, it hasn't gone extinct. It's now, it was recently found to be on a little island of Hawaii. But, um, yeah, they people thought that was a natural one, but as it turned out, it was just, they were wrong. And, uh, yeah, it's widely accepted that there's no native lizards or any other reptile or amphibian. Uh, because I, Hawaii is such an isolated place in the middle of the North Pacific Ocean. It's literally, mm. if you look at Hawaii on a map, all you can see is blue. You, you zoom out a bit, still just blue. You zoom out a bit, still just blue. At this point, you can see the curvature of the Earth very clearly, still just blue. Um, and then eventually some other land masses appear. But yeah, it's in the middle of nowhere in the ocean is essentially why Hawaii had no reptiles or amphibians. And uh, yeah, this is actually a Patreon episode for Philip Iovino. Um, so hopefully this scratches the uh, Hawaiian oh, gecko Hawaiian itch gecko. that Philip's yeah. been feeling. The last episode that Philip requested was the musk turtle one, and that was a great episode. Mm. Stink turtles, stink pots. Y- yeah, those stinky little spiky guys. Um, so yeah, the uh, Hawaiian geckos have got big shoes to fill. And only tiny feet. Yeah. Sticky tiny, feet, sticky though. feet. Yeah. Which would be undermined by the use of shoes. <laughs> yeah, shoes for geckos would be a nightmare. Um, it would really take away like a dramatic portion of their functionality, wouldn't it? Um, yeah. Funny that, isn't it? How shoes make us stronger, but um, they would make geckos weaker. Mm. So, <laughs> let's talk about yes. Hawaii. Let's talk about Hawaii. Uh, iNaturalist reckons there are 27 species of reptile amphibian introduced there. I suspect it's actually more, uh, or at least it... it it certainly has been more. I think some of them have gone extinct because Hawaii is, I won't say too much about this early on, but Hawaii is kind of like, because there's so many introduced species of reptile there, they're actually out competing each other in some places. So there's like this really bizarre, yeah. unnatural competition going on. But we'll talk a bit more about that later on, most you've, likely. You've also got these sort of different levels of because you, you, you have, okay, invasive species, but you have di- different categorizations. You have sort of introduced or naturalized or, yeah, invasive or, you know, diff- different, uh, either it's a progression thing, some have been there longer and, and sort of established better, or some just aren't doing the big expansive stuff that some invasive species do. So totally. it's partly impact, partly uh distribution and partly time yes yeah impact yeah. distribution and time we yeah, I, think, I think it's yeah i think that covers the say. categorizations right yeah well i think there's just sort of like yeah i don't think there's like a sort of 
I've never come across a firm sort of cutoff. Um, I think it's when there they become is... damaging to native species that it becomes the sort of invasive term starts to come into use. It's like when yeah, there's I, negative I... effects on biodiversity that is right. native. There's no, it's not like a hard and fast rule of, there's not some metric, you know, it's not splitting up a continuous something you can measure, but there are categorizations. Certainly the naturalized thing requires reproduction to have occurred in the new range. So yeah. that's quite an easy yes, no. Introduced is quite easy, they're over there or they're not. Sometimes that's harder to work out, but the actual yes, no is quite easy to, you know, it's either a yes or a no. The invasive one is much harder, I would say. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, hell, I mean, you can really get into the thing of should we be using the term invasive in a lot of ways because that sort of pushes a lot of agency onto the animals, which probably isn't fairly placed. Yeah, you could just use the term successful. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. It, it's a tough one because at the same time, you do need to galvanise support for removing some species from certain areas. So... Yeah. Well, apparently, yeah. apparently yeah. that's a Tricky. big problem in Hawaii. Because, uh, well, I don't suppose it's so much of a problem. Because I think by the time the thing, things are really widespread, it's kind of impossible to get Too late. for the most part. Anyway. Yeah. There's a there's a wonderful curve. Um, gosh, where did I see it? Damn, I can't remember where I've seen it. This sort of invasive curve. I don't know if it. I don't. It's more a. Um, it's not like a proper graph or anything. That it's a uh, more an illustration with this exponential S-curve, right? So it's starting, and numbers are increasing very, very little because there are very few individuals. Then this is sort of boom period with a very steep upwards trend. Then it starts moving off again and asymptoping at the top. So you go, okay, that's how an invasive species population sort of grows. Makes sense. And then annotated along this thing was uh, the human reactions during different periods along this curve. So when it's just introduced, no one's noticing. When it's just starting to boom, people start noticing individuals. When it's nearing the sort of middle to top of that curve, then it's like, okay, that's when people tend to start thinking, okay, what sort of impact are they having? Should we start getting rid of them? And then sort of a bit further on from that, that's when people start actually doing the uh, policy changes to mitigate their spread. And by that point, I mean, you, you know the full context of the curve, that's really towards the end where things are getting a bit out of control yeah. so it's this disconnect between what's actually happening with the number of animals there and our ability to detect them in good time to actually mitigate the worst of their spread or potentially the worst of their impacts that's real hard real hard that's why some of these things just get left and go unnoticed until it's too late because it's hard to see these animals yeah in the case of something like a little gecko i mean you start seeing bright green geckos around, and you just think that's adorable, that's cool, nice. And then that by too. the time anyone, <laughs> by the time anyone cares about it, it's too late. By the time you're like, oh, where are those insects I used to favour? <laughs> well, they're gone. <laughs> where are all my favourite slugs? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, and that's actually enough, that's another good point that people aren't as concerned if it was having an impact on insects or something. If those geckos were coming along and like fifty of them swarmed your dog, they'd be they'd be out in a second. People would be up in arms. They'd be get rid of the gecko invaders. It would all be a thing. But insect loss is harder to get people excited about. I would suggest, and harder yeah. to get policy changes to mitigate. Yeah, and I think because um, so many of 
Hawaii's invasive species have come from either the pet trade or just, um, as we'll talk about a bit later on, uh, kind of people in zoos with sort of weird ideas. Um, or deliberate introductions. Yeah, or deliberate yeah, introductions. We- um, that's what I mean. That is a deliberate introduction. But like... Yeah, there are there are a disproportionate amount of like extremely endearing non-native species in Hawaii. They've got they've got Jackson's chameleons. They've got all these nice geckos we're about to talk about. They've got uh, green and black dart frogs, Dendrobates auratus. Mm. Um, I mean, they've got so many cool species. It would be awesome to go to Hawaii just because you could have a really good chance of seeing these cool animals. It's like but a prior weird to this, zoo. <laughs> yeah, prior to this. Um, what was it? There's like a famous phrase that um, Fred Krauss said about Hawaii. He said, for herpetologists, Hawaii, with its dearth of reptiles, just isn't much of an attraction anyway. It'd be like going to Alaska to study coral. <laughs> Until so now. Until now, where the climate has warmed so viciously that coral can only grow in Alaska. <laughs> <laughs> it grows on the land. Yeah. And the polar, it basically grows in the corpses of polar bears, which are now extinct. What a um, what a dark future. Ah, uh, well, never mind. And to be um, fair, you do get cold water corals. Yeah, you do, but I mean they're pretty drab, aren't they? I don't. I've never seen them. They have really famous ones in uh, Falmouth, mm. in Cornwall. Um, yeah, I remember there was a big hoo ha about. Uh, there was like some proposal to dredge. Part of the little marina there, right. and uh, right. everyone, was, everyone was like, "Don't you know there's like all these really rare corals?" Um, and I think in the end they actually did get protected, which is good. Mm. Good. Well, that's yeah. that's a win. That counts. Win for the coral. Uh, but yeah, so before we get into the geckos, we're going to talk about. We've got three papers here about Hawaiian geckos, uh, but there is an honourable mention that needs to occur, which may or may not come up later on which is Hemidactylus frenatus, a.k.a. the Asian house gecko, which is by far the most common gecko on Hawaii, but because we couldn't, we could only do what we could find papers on, we haven't really got much cause to talk about it. So if you're wondering what is the most common gecko on Hawaii, it's the one which you probably see on a daily basis, I would imagine. Yes, I think so. Getting up to all kinds of mischief. Yeah, just running about, eating bugs, falling off the ceiling when you least expect it. Landing on yeah. you in your sleep. Yeah. Waving their Classic. tails around. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they actually didn't arrive until the early 1950s. And they're thought to have been introduced to Hawaii on military equipment heading back from the Pacific after World War II. Um, so yeah, they're a recent addition and they've kind of like stormed oh. in and over- overtaken uh, stump tail geckos and morning geckos, which were kind of running the show in terms of uh, Hawaii's like home dwelling invasive geckos, the ones which were kind of commensal with humans and living in people's rafters. But yeah, now that's Hemidactylus frenatus. And what else was I going to say about that? Well, just that we couldn't find papers on those guys particularly, so we're doing some other geckos, basically. Yeah, that's That's what you're getting at, just a justification of not doing house geckos. Yeah. So uh, yeah, don't be misled. Those are the most common gecko on Hawaii. Uh, but obviously there's lots of lots of lots and lizards lots of what the hell there's lots of lizards which have gone to hawaii um of which hemidactylus frenatus is the most common but we're going to talk about some slightly more obscure ones at least in terms of how common they are in hawaii 
Um, that's not to say they aren't common, but they just aren't the most common. Anyway, let's get into it, shall we? <laughs> yeah, okay. Paper one then? Yeah, paper one. So we have a paper from Herp Notes published in 2013 by Buchel and Alcala. Toke gecko, gecko gecko, predation on juvenile house rats. It's as shocking as it sounds. You really only need the title and you know what's going on. Um, so tokes are introduced in Hawaii. If, you know, if you're struggling to draw an image of a toke in your brain, they're these big fat sluggers. They get to be massive. They're one of the bigger geckos worldwide. They're I up think. there. Yeah, they're definitely yeah. up there. I mean... They're not the biggest, but... No, but they're heavy set. Like, they're stocky. So if you have a 30 centimetre toke gecko, I mean, it's like a little pit bull, um, big old head. They're sort of grey, aren't they, with colourful orange and purple spots. Grey They're very blue. beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like almost like a, like a cobalt. And the young ones have beautiful stripy black and white tails. Oh, the young ones are something special, yeah. They're really cool. Um, so yeah, these toke geckos, I mean, they're known for being quite obnoxious lizards. They're really loud. Um, they're also extremely aggressive when they fight. Yeah, they're obnoxious. How are they obnoxious? Well, I used to have one that lived in my bedroom. And, and it would scream at you at times. It would scream at night. Yeah, which yeah. I would say is obnoxious. And if I tried to <laughs> accost it, I could never find it. And if I did, it would charge at me and try and bite me. So I was like, whatever, man, stay, fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose that could be construed as obnoxious if you had sort of an owl making nice noises in the night you wouldn't you wouldn't consider that obnoxious though right i would i would try and slingshot the owl slingshot it <laughs> damn <laughs> i wouldn't slingshot an owl but no you'd set um, the tokes on it yeah well i don't know it was obviously they're not they're not really obnoxious they're just loud and um you know they they're make loud and proud but yeah that's what they sound yeah. like um and anyway, they're introduced in Hawaii. Well, they were. I actually couldn't find much information about their current status in Hawaii. And no one's ever recorded them on iNaturalist. And I did a bit of it's... digging. Yeah. And I'm not sure they're actually still there. There was a bit of an eradication measure going on. There's like a invasive species group in Hawaii that published a flyer about them in 2007. And then I, made, I read a magazine article about it and it seemed to suggest that they actually may have been exterminated. I imagine that the detectability of tokes is much higher for a lot of other geckos because they tend to go to areas high up and scream. Yeah, exactly. So maybe that's that sort of... Or maybe it was just a few and wasn't a super stable population. Yeah, they've Any certainly been reasons. in Hawaii. Yeah. Um, the loads of papers you read say, oh, tokes, Hawaii... Um, but the thing is, people just cite what they're reading, so it doesn't necessarily mean that any of those people have actually seen tokes in. Yeah. Well, and it can ha sort of carry this momentum. Uh, I mean, a lot of these papers from sort of early 2000s and late 90s, correct? Yeah. Yeah, so if these sort of things aren't updated and checked, then people are only going to cite the information that exists. Yeah. Because what yeah, more so... can you do? So apparently, yeah, no, somewhere on the main island of Hawaii, there was this guy called um, Grant Merritt, and he basically got a phone call to say, it was basically the um, Hawaiian State Department called him, 
on uh, this like pest control number and they'd heard this new sound in the night. Apparently someone who lived close to this guy called Grant Merritt had been releasing Tokyo geckos in the hopes of getting them established. Why? Just because some people like want to have geckos about, I guess, and they don't know any better. He was already known <laughs> okay. because he'd, he'd, other exotic animals had appeared near his property. And so apparently Fred Krauss and some agents from the Department of Agriculture went along and caught five tokays and pickled them in formaldehyde and put them in the Bishop Museum. And that was in Manoa. And apparently that was the eradication. So there might be that that was the only tokays and everyone's talking about that huh. incident. But regardless... Yeah, I'm sure that sort of incident probably got a lot of press at the time. Yeah, but it's like with all these things, it's so hard to find the information. Um yeah, it's all it gra- it's yeah. all in grey stuff, and you're just you know you don't know how reliable it is because you know people don't necessarily cite the sources. Yada yada yada. But essentially, the reason we thought it was justifiable to talk about tokays is because at some point or another there were some tokays in Hawaii, and uh, now there probably aren't, but there maybe are. There might be again. Who knows? I think but, there's probably pet tokays in uh, Hawaii. Oh, for sure, people will have they are some poised. To escape and, and... It is illegal to have reptiles as pets in Hawaii, but that's not to say no one has them. Yeah, I'm sure it's also illegal at the time that guy was releasing exotic <laughs> animals into the wild. I don't you know, it didn't stop him. The long arm of the law. Yeah, so I've got... According to this... According to something, they've been introduced in Manoa, Kaneo and Makiki. But yeah, like I say, whether or not they're actually still in any of those places, not sure. But yeah, this observation was pretty wacky. Should we get into the Toke gecko eating the rat? Yeah, with wacky being the appropriate word. This wasn't actually observed in Hawaii, though. We should say that up front. This, no. was, this was observed near Demogwati City in the Philippines. Yes. People knew that Toke geckos would eat mice in captivity because they'd fed them mice and they'd gobbled them up. But no one had actually seen a wild Toke, as far as I know, eating a mammal of this kind of stature or any mammal as far as i know i'm sure people had seen it but it hadn't been properly documented yeah yeah of course because i think it people take... to live in you know you live alongside these animals you see all sorts of crazy stuff yeah and they love human habitation as they love sitting on they're a classic wool sitter yeah they live in little pipes they'll you know they'll do whatever and uh yeah like it only you can imagine can't you that like a human habitation is probably going to have both small mammals and geckos so it seems an inevitability that they've come into contact but yeah in the paper the photograph of the toke eating the juvenile rat pretty unsettling photo this is an open access paper so people can go check this out if you really want to see a grim picture of a, a rat getting got by a toke yeah and it's being gold from the, uh, the back end so the toke is like holding on to the basically the sort of back third of the mouse or the juvenile it's a juvenile rat isn't it has mm. disappeared down the toke and then the toke is just holding onto it and then the mouse is sort of like its little front legs are out and it, it looks like it's trying to get away but it's also its nose is bleeding which is pretty rough and the description in the paper of what happened was that the gecko caught and tried to swallow the back end of the body but the rat was kicking and screaming it was too strong and so it was knocking the rat against the concrete wall by like rapidly spinning its head basically just windmilling around yeah windmilling this rat against the concrete wall until it was subdued which eventually killed the rat unfortunately it didn't get to eat the rat because it was disturbed 
But yeah, the fact that it was capable of killing a rat by concrete windmilling is pretty rough. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of tool use, isn't it, in some sense? With the wall being the tool? Yeah. I guess... I don't know. It's funny, though, because it's not like... I feel like tool use... To me, tool use is where there's like a problem to... I suppose there is a problem to be solved and then you kind yeah. of use a tool. But then again, it's just a f- sort of jerking around reflex. It's not like the Toge's gone and found something. But then it has to be near a wall to complete the action. Yeah, maybe it's just very wise and it's made the world its tool. I, I don't know. You, you you sort of head towards that word, those sorts of words, when you think of those those fish that throw little shelled things against rocks and stuff. Yeah. I mean, they've got a very special rock that they like doing it on. But it's not that different, or, or is so it? Or really? so I am led to believe. Yeah. Toke's just, you know, he makes it up as he goes along. <laughs> smash it against this, smash it against that. But yeah, yeah. no, maybe, it, I don't know. I'm kind of hesitant to call that tool use because I think it's just kind of like a a reflexive thing. Like, I've got something in my mouth. Yeah. Wimmel around. Flail it around. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm, I'm totally willing to, to give way and say that's not tool use, but I just like the idea of reptiles being given a bit more credit when it comes to intelligent stuff and they know what they're doing when it comes to behaviours like that. Yeah, me too, really. But don't give this one too much credit. He's a moron. (laughs) (laughs) But um, yeah, so that's basically... He got a meal. Well, almost got a meal if it wasn't for the humans. Yeah, but this is that's that is pretty much the paper. Um, Abner Bukol, who is the lead author of this paper, who I... From what I could tell at the time was like a master's student in the Philippines. Um, actually saw this occur six times. So six separate occasions there was uh, rats being eaten by tokes of various sizes. So this wasn't by any means an isolated incident, at least in the, this area of the Philippines. What was the city called? Dumaguete. Dumaguete. Yeah, so Negros Island in the Philippines. Tokes are eating rats. So there you go. Yeah. Take that to the I- bank. Yeah, I think I think that's a good little piece of info to uh, push toke opinion in places where rats cause issues for agricultural crops and things like that. Mate, if anything, Hawaii could do with some more tokes. Yeah, well, don't say things like that. That's outrageous. <laughs> just kidding. Um, okay, so yeah, that's tokes. Crazy paper that we just wanted to talk about. Yeah, it's a good excuse. That. Yeah, as soon as we saw that, we had to. So that is paper one. Paper two, should we move on? Yeah, let's go. So, Seifan, Federman, Mount Smith and Werner, 2010. So we're going back a little way for this one. Nocturnal foraging in a diurnal tropical lizard on Hawaii. Journal of Tropical Ecology. I love how this paper starts. I just want to read yeah. the, the first sentence. Animals must eat. The set. <laughs> I can't even say it. Animals must eat, necessitating their encounter with food. <laughs> it gets right to the point. Animals need to eat, therefore they move and do stuff. Yeah. If you look at the what they reason. do, you can get some idea of what they're eating and how they're eating. Yeah. What species is it? Felsuma laticorda, aka the gold dust day gecko. Right. That's that's the common name I know for it too. The common name they say is just mouth. Well, this this was a little bit odd in the paper, and it made me doubt my everything. Ben, they you, say Malagash. You know names of stuff. You shouldn't doubt yourself ever. 
Well, they they say Malagash Daygecko, which I'm I'm that confused is 100% on two accounts because it shouldn't be Malagash. So maybe it was meant to be Malagasy. That's what I assume because H and Y are next to each other on the keyboard. Right. It could be okay. So that that would actually solve that entirely. But I <laughs> thought that there was the common name for like animals and stuff tends to be Madagascar or Madagascan, but then Malagasy used for people and stuff. I know that's sort of changing and it's a little bit in flux and I think it might be sort of like older common names tend towards the Madagascan stuff and more modern stuff is Malagasy because that's a proper, more proper term, I think. Yeah. But yeah, so Malagasy Daygecko and I thought, wait a second, if that was meant to be just Madagascan or Malagasy Daygecko, that's pretty broad because aren't pretty much all Daygeckos from Madagascar bar a few from like the Seychelles and stuff? Yeah, I mean, it would be a really common... It would be a very confusing common name if it were. Maybe mm. people do call them that, but, like, I think it's better to have a little more distinction. And, I mean, the gold dust day gecko is such a perfect name for this animal. It's... Yeah, um, they do have a different one. They could also be called broad-tailed day gecko, and that fits with their Latin name, which is Felsuma laticorda, laticorda being broad tail. Okay, well, I like that. I like that more now. But mm. I feel like if you're in the field and you see one, broad-tailed, like unless you've got all the other species to compare it's it to. It's a little bit tricky, yeah. yeah. Yeah, or if you're very familiar. Whereas gold dust, um, they are really beautiful geckos with this like bright green base colour. Then, then they've got real red blobs on the back and head. And then they do have like, it looks like someone's just sort of like give them a little light dusting with a gold spray paint can. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. I can see why Gold Dust Day Gecko is a good name. Sort of a Christmassy appearance, haven't they? Yeah, and it makes sense that that's just a spelling error there, and it's meant to be heading towards yeah, Malagasy. No. That makes perfect sense. Did you know where yeah. Felsuma comes from? Mm. Uh, is it something to do with eating fruit? I wish. No, it's a Latinized version of the last name of Dutch physicist Mark van Felsum. What? Yeah. Why? Why? I know. It's, it, yeah. Right. What did I he do? Fels- I, have, I have no idea. But that's that's where it came from. Well, according to my cursor- cursory search on Wikipedia pages. <laughs> so, despite that, I still quite like the name because I don't know. I find it quite easy to remember. I think it's, it's quite an easy a nice one to one remember. To it's an easy one to say. Yeah. And there's something. Of, I think it's like. Um, you get those groups that are just like, okay, all day geckos are Felsuma. Whether that should be the case or not, I'm not even going to touch. Because you get that with um, Anolis as well. It's like, okay, a lizard that looks like that, it's going to be an Anolis. Yeah. Again, also not the, you know, whatever, sidestepping that. But it's one of those where you see a day gecko and you're like, damn, Felsuma, job done. So it's the name, it feels like an older name that's sort of been around a long time. Yeah. Definitely. Whether it's actually super super correct as monophyletic, I don't know. I'm not sure. But you sort of presume it because they're all green and little and cute. Yeah, and they're kind and of from like... very limited islands too. So yeah, you know, most of them are Madagascar, aren't they? And then there's like other associated island. I'm not sure if Comoros has their own or whatever. But anyway, I have a feeling Comoros does. Yeah. Reunion does. And if it doesn't, it's certainly going to have some now. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, this one, Falsuma laticorda, a.k.a. Goldust Daygecko, or the fat-tailed green boy. Broad-tailed. Okay. Broad-tailed Daygecko 
is native. I feel like fat's different to broad, isn't it? Come on. Well, yeah, fat is sort of like uh, wide across the entirety of the circle, whereas broad is like dorsolaterally compressed and wide. Yeah. yeah. So this species is native to northern Madagascar, and it eats nectar and bugs, and it's exceptionally beautiful. And it came to Hawaii in the 1970s. Um, and now this one is one which was um combination of factors, but most likely... Certainly one population was released deliberately in the grounds of the Honolulu Zoo by an absolute maverick named Sean McKeown, who was the creator of reptiles for Honolulu Zoo. I mean, the 70s were a different time. It was a different time. (laughs) He genuinely thought that by releasing more animals into the flora and for well the flora that's not going to have any impact on what animals you release well they were released into the flora literally into the flora yeah he he put them he into just little dashed flowers. them up into the flora yeah um, yeah and anyway he was like thinking oh it'll be better with lizards because Hawaii doesn't have any and they'll fill a nice niche so you know being curator of reptiles on Lulu he was obviously quite informed but. We just didn't have the knowledge. It's like 50 years ago. It's quite a long time, especially for invasive species research. So, yeah. Yeah. It was a poor decision, but that's how it went. Um, And, yeah, that's kind of how they ended up there. People would take them and they'd be like, oh, I'm moving house, but I don't want to leave without my geckos, which they'd become accustomed to living in and around their dwellings. So they'd be like, oh, I'll just put a couple in a shoebox, take them with me down the road. And then before too long, (laughs) they're absolutely everywhere. And... uh, one thing about these which kind of speaks to their success is that they're really good at taking advantage of human habitation. Um, they're more than happy to live alongside humans. Uh, even when you... I think we I think we had a paper a while ago that was these the geckos that were sneaking into the kitchen and eating all the condensed milk. That wasn't these. That was... Um, that was it was a day gecko. It was though, a day gecko, it? yeah. That was episode four. Um, yeah. Yeah. No. That the, we did a whole episode on day geckos, but none of the day because I went back and checked, none of the species we talked about were gold dust day geckos. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the mm, okay. Yeah. But yeah, these guys. I mean, they love deforestation. If you cut down the trees, they'll move in. And uh, what this paper was looking at was to see whether or not, because obviously some geckos, what they'll do when humans come along is they'll start spending time around lights. So at night, they'll hunt around lights. And the reason for that is because insects are drawn to the lights. They learn that they can just sit there and try and eat the insects. Um, But uh, this species is actually principally diurnal. So it's active during the day and it'll be mooching around looking for sweet treats like nectar and bugs. But on the main island of Hawaii, where they've been introduced in Kailakona, these little lizards have kind of wised up and begun spending time around the lights of a youth hostel. So they've started spending time outside at night, hunting for bugs, it would seem. And the authors of this paper thought that perhaps because they've switched to this nocturnal lifestyle, they might actually be behaving differently to take advantage of insect prey at night. And they thought they'd kind of be shifting more towards ambush as a strategy for predating on insects rather than actively searching for prey and they thought they'd look into this by collecting some variables about behavior so how long they're pausing how often they're pausing how much time they spend moving etc etc and so they watched a bunch of lizards for half an hour each in the daytime and at night and took note of their behavior 
yeah, sort of measuring things, what sort of stuff did they do, every time they were paused, every time they were sort of spent crawling, moving, and a frequency of those three different movements too. Basically any sort of metric to measure foraging strategy, I guess, or a balance between active and sit and wait foraging. Yeah. Hmm. But I think it's fair to say they didn't really find out a whole lot. They didn't find much. There didn't seem to be a particular difference between daytime and nighttime, uh, pausing and moving. Males and females. Um, or even males and females, yeah. Just seems like they were hunting for bugs at night, like they would hunt for bugs during the day. That's really the take-home message of this, isn't it? What's different is that this is a diurnal lizard, and they're coming out at night to take advantage of human habitation. So it's quite an artificial lighting. Yeah. Yeah. So it's quite um, it's quite a bonkers adaptation. Uh, you know, working the night shift. No one wants to work the night shift. There's a reason we get paid extra for it. Our circadian rhythm gets messed up. It probably reduces your lifespan. Um, so for these geckos yeah. to be doing it, I mean, they must be receiving some kind of danger pay. Danger pay. I think their danger pay comes in the form of the warmth from the light, keeping their bodies warm uh, and helping with that sort of thermoregulation. I think that's how they're paid. Yeah. Um, but essentially, because in a lot of ways, it's a massive advantage. Let's say you can, you know, you have active foraging time for double the amount than you would in your native range. I mean, who knows? Maybe these geckos don't actually need that much sleep, so it's not that much of a negative side effect and they can just keep going and going and going and that's why they're doing so well from an invasive sort of point of view is because they're so adaptable and making use of a new resource that they wouldn't have in a sort of wild environment could well be yeah could well be i mean i'm sure the abundance of i i mean i'm i'm sure there's papers about this but i'm certain the abundance of geckos in and around buildings is higher than in their natural habitat which is like caves you know like Hemidactylus frenatus, the Asian house gecko, their native habitat is like walls of rocks and stuff. There can't be as many bowling around on those rock walls as there are bowling around in people's houses. Surely not. Yeah, I don't know. I don't... I mean, I have not read a paper that looks at that specifically. Um, Part of me fears that any paper that has looked at that did it in the sort of 80s or something and have failed to take into account the probability of detection yeah. issue. And so you're just spotting more there because it, you know, it's human habitation and they, there's less stuff to hide behind, perhaps, perhaps and they're used to compared you. to a cave system. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd be, I, I think probably what you're saying is right, because I feel like you see that in other species where the density increases in urban areas where there's supplementary food. Yeah. And in this case, like supplementary access to food too. Um, I just can't think of an example for geckos that I've seen that take into account that observer issue. No, one other. Th- um, I hope there's one. I hope there's some. I hope there's loads. I hope there's five. No more, no less. So I think one thing I would like also like to see is whether or not the diet composition of these geckos changes. Like if they could find some which don't do this nocturnal thing and ones that do, are the ones which do getting right. a higher protein diet because they're. I mean nectar isn't something you can hunt around lights, which is supposed to be a big constituent of their diet. So it'd be interesting to see yeah. if they're shifting towards a more protein-rich insect diet. Who knows what effect that might have on them? Maybe they're going bigger and beefier. Could be anything. And there's good sort of examples of that in other species where 
there was a paper out recently about um, crows foraging. I think it was American crows foraging at garbage patches. They have higher cholesterol and basically because they have a worse diet, they're still surviving in urban areas, but they're not having as good a time of it. And I wonder if similar sort of things are happening for the gecko because they've got a more restricted but plentiful diet. Yeah, there's a similar... Maybe they're all getting fat. Who knows? There's a similar paper on um, urban foxes in the UK. I think they... Yeah. Yeah, they... um, Like loads of metrics that measure their health were lower in urban individuals than in wild ones. Like, yeah. I think their survival was about the same, but like they were just ropey and they looked ill and they were just eating rubbish. Like literal rubbish. So... Yeah, lots of like high fat foods that they wouldn't normally get. Yeah, and that's something that's quite hard to detect if you're just looking at numbers, perhaps. Yeah. I just don't. Any sort of sub, sub, uh, sub fatal costs. Mm. Foxes just aren't supposed to eat chips. No, but they do love it. <laughs> Who doesn't love a good chip? I know. Humans aren't really meant to eat chips, let's face it. Well, I don't know. Rooty tubers are like pretty archaic part of our diet I just don't think you're meant to deep fry them yeah but they're not yeah exactly that's that's what I'm getting <laughs> yeah. at yeah. no part of evolution has prepared us for deep frying <laughs> no um, so yeah that was the gold dust day gecko and so it is an invasive species on Hawaii and it lives near humans and is coming out at night when it should be coming out in the day because they're adaptable they're wily they're crafty and so with that in the forefront of our minds, let's talk about their reproduction. Yes, we have a paper from Goldberg and Krauss, 2011. Notes on the re- uh, notes on reproduction of the gold dust day gecko from Hawaii in current herpetology. And in my mind, this paper started as animals must reproduce, necessitating their encounter with conspecifics. <laughs> yes. And I think that is one of the major constants of life on Earth. Unless you're... Eating. Unless you're a morning gecko or... Uh, what other hermaphrodite? Not hermaphrodite. What other uh, species are there which don't... Path, parthenogenesis. Path, parthenogenic? Yeah. Um, oh, oh Brahmini well, blind snake. Salamanders and stuff. Brahmini blind snake. Blind snakes, eh? Yeah. Ooh. I can't. What salamanders do it? Wasn't there the weird? Oh no, that that was that was stealing genes. Oh yeah, the gene stealers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's different. They just. Oh, it's all very complicated. Share their little sperm pockets around. Um. Mm. But yeah, so the point of this paper is to disseminate knowledge about the reproductive biology of this species as an invasive. And the idea is that if you can understand how and where they're reproducing, then you might be able to have a better chance of not necessarily controlling the ones that are already out there, but maybe minimizing their spread or at least understanding or getting an insight into their likely future spread and uh, perhaps their ecological impacts. Yeah, I think that's it. It's sort of producing information where you can be like, okay, well, we know they can breed for this period of time. Okay, these are sort of climactic um, set up in maybe a new island or something like that. And you think, okay, well, then if climate's driving this sort of reproduction here, then climate might be driving that sort of reproduction there. That sort of leads to this sort of rate if you had a base population of whatever. Precisely, precisely. There's a lot of whatevers and maybes in there, but the, <laughs> the point <laughs> is it helps with estimation of the future. 
Yeah, your ifs and buts are fine by me. So they looked at 88 museum specimens, which is a nice number, symmetrical. And they were pickled geckos. Um, males were larger than females. Delicious. Yeah, males bigger than females, averaging a whopping 54.8 millimetres compared to 50.6 SVL. So the males are a good four or five millimetres bigger than the females. And Monsters. Probably because they're savage at battling each other, I would imagine. Most geckos... So there's this great comment in the paper where they say that this species is the most aggressive member of the genus Felsuma. And there's a little citation there, Henkel and Schmidt. I was like, oh, great. That's going to be a wonderful paper where they got all the Felsumas into a big, big battle ring. Which Felsumas are strongest or most aggressive? And I couldn't read the paper because it's not a paper, it's a book, and I can't get the book. So that was the end of that. Uh, what was the book? The book was Amphibians and Reptiles of Madagascar and the Seychelles and stuff, and some other islands. Oh, I bet it's a good book. It's probably a wicked book, but... But budget's not looking good at the moment. Well, and also, if it's a book about all the amphibians and reptiles of Madagascar and all those islands, the comment about it being... There's not going to be a study in there about how aggressive Felsumas are towards each other. It's probably no. a collection of field observations of some Felsuma just smashing each other. Yeah, it's just going to be the invasive ones. Perhaps they chase away other invasive species. Yeah, and there's sort of additional evidence to back that up because the males are slightly bigger. And that would perhaps suggest some sort of male-male competition. Maybe, perhaps. Yeah, oh, for sure these things are fighting each other. Geckos are horrible. Maybe not for sure. Lovely. Maybe not for sure, but I feel confident they they probably are. Okay, yeah. So the Felsuma laticorda here. Pretty sure that's what's in this video. They are on a wall. To, yeah, it's definitely them. They're on a wall together. They're both males by the looks of it, and um, they're doing this weird ritualized dance where the one they're sort of like creeping around by each other. The bigger one's waving its tail, and it's like angling its body towards the other one, so it looks bigger. Um, I mean, they look livid they both look like they're about to kick off uh oh yeah they yeah. sort of like half roll over and wave that wag their tail it obviously makes them look bigger um that sounds adorable it is kind of adorable yeah it's kind of like they it, do have very cute faces these day geckos they were well, they're very round pupils yeah and they're so oh, cute geez okay one sprung at the other one and bit it on the back and then uh, yeah it seems to be chasing the other one away i'm pretty sure they're both males so uh, they're, they're fighting. Well, there we go. That's a nice little bit of anecdotal evidence supported by the sexual dimorphism, which we brought up an episode or so ago, yeah. or even last episode. And that backs up this little comment about them being aggressive. Yeah. Now, being most aggressive, uh, that's hard to, hard to be confident in. But I think we can at least settle that they have the capacity for gecko-on-gecko violence that probably facilitates they're spread as a introduced species yeah i'll put the link to that video in the show notes and then people can watch it and if i've completely misconstrued what's going on and that's a male and a female you can tell me but i'm pretty confident they're both males well is one yeah what's the sort of millimeterage difference between them well i would say it's maybe like one or two millimeters with one of them looking like it's about 54.8 so yeah i reckon they're both males <laughs> So they're aggressive geckos and many of them are pickled in jars in museums and they were looking to see kind of um, 
They were basically dissecting them to look at their reproductive parts to see when males were producing sperm, that kind of stuff. And what they found out was that females of this species, as in most geckos, produce one pair of eggs per clutch. That's not news. But what was cool was that females were found to have multiple clutches inside them at differing stages of development. So they had both both full-blown oviductal eggs. At the same time, the next batch of yolk was being laid down for the second clutch. So... um, Essentially, they're kind of reproductive juggernauts. They're capable of having more than one clutch a year, so that's four babies per year per female. The technical term for yolk being laid down is basophilic, basophilic granules in the ooplasm. That's a great little fact which I will never remember. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it means. Basophilic granules in the ooplasm. <laughs> Literally double oplasm. There you go. And the other interesting thing wow. was that juveniles were collected in both February and March, as well as August. So you had like two periods where babies were being collected. And that suggests that the gold dust day geckos have a have an extended reproductive season and produce multiple clutches. So they're obviously doing well. And this reproductive success has almost certainly contributed to the range expansion in Hawaii. And I suppose when you've got the species which can be so reproductively successful coupled with their tolerance of numerous habitats especially disturbed ones it's no wonder they're so successful and like i said earlier they even benefit from deforestation and uh yeah the kind of take-home message of this paper is that don't let them get to other islands because they might savage other animals obviously in hawaii it's a different case where there are no lizards for them to compete with but where they're they could likely outcompete other lizards maybe so yeah, it's kind of a cautionary tale. I I think that's exactly it. Is okay. We don't know. You're never going to be able to know the impacts of any invasive species very well, but you can be confident that Felsuma um, laticorda is well geared to be an invasive species because of this flexibility in both habitat and reproductive cycle. Yeah, yeah, solid. So there you have it. Hawaii's got a problem with geckos. Well, depending on which way you look at it, most Hawaiian people, I think, love them. Apparently, there's like Hawaii is covered in statues of geckos, really common decals on cars, mugs, T-shirts. People see geckos as kind of an emblem of Hawaii. And so, I mean, I guess it stands to reason. Geckos are... Really? Yeah, they're really popular. They're really popular. Yeah, like... um, yeah, people really like them, which I can understand because, I mean, they're bright green, they're super endearing. They are exceptionally likeable lizards. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Whether or not they're so fond sure. of the Hemidactylus frenatus as they are the day geckos, I'm not sure. But, um, yeah, they're definitely there to stay. They arrived, I mean, skinks arrived with the first human settlers and geckos, I think, not long after. And then, you know, it's been, you know, 50, 60, 70 years since the species that we're talking about have been been in hawaii so that's an entire generation people grew up with them so yeah it's no yeah. surprise that they're popular they are yeah lovely little guys yeah yeah uh so yeah that is hawaiian geckos now you know geckos live in hawaii they shouldn't really but they're definitely there to stay i'm no invasive species apologist but yeah there's nothing we can do about it now just don't release any geckos is probably a good take-home message. <laughs> I, I think that's the least to ask. Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so should we move on to our hotly anticipated species of the bye week? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so this one is by Razzo Avina, Russell and Manana, Shirts, Rako Tuarison, Raza Findrabe, Glor, and Vences. 2019, and it is entitled Finaritra, a splendid new leaf-tailed gecko, Europlatus species, from Marohehi National Park in northeastern Madagascar, and this was in Zootaxa. If I was to summarise this paper in a single sentence, it would be, animals must speciate, necessitating their encounter with mutation. <laughs> wow, that was actually really good. <laughs> wow, that was actually really good. <laughs> it uh, just that the, the sentence in that the second paper just caught me i love uh, it yeah humans need to drink necessitating their encounter with taps or wells <laughs> but it's so true this is the thing it's so true the animals must eat it's undeniable it's kind of intoxicating the simplicity of it um, yeah, exactly. In a complex world. So yeah, we've been in Hawaii. Simple fact. But the geckos we were mostly talking about, exception of tokes, are from Southeast Asia. But gold dust day geckos are from Madagascar and northern Madagascar. So it's actually very fitting that now we are casting our minds to northeast Madagascar in the Marohehi Massif. Marohehi Massif located northeast Madagascar, between the towns of Andapa and Sambava. And this massif is part of the National Park Network of Madagascar, and it's known to be a cradle of endemism. So, Europlatus... A species breadbasket. A species breadbasket. One of those ones where you've got all the different types of bread. Tear and share. This is Europlatus. Yeah. Which is a really famous genus, I think it's fair to say, possibly because they're one of the most bonkers looking groups of lizards that exist on the face of the earth, if not the most bonkers looking group of lizards that exist on the face of the earth. And they're known as... Oof, I don't know, there are those pink iguanas. Man, pink iguanas, they're pink. Those are pretty wild. They're pink, but their their body structure is pretty standard iguana. These things, <sighs> they look like they're made out of sticks What about and geckos leaves. with no legs? That's pretty weird. Yeah, that is weird. That is weird. Or the bipes, they're vile yeah 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 but okay so i'm not agreeing with the vile statement but they are weird no, they're vile trust me if you were to see one you'd lose yourself you'd lose your mind it's horrible i've not seen one but uh, never look them in the when eye you watch a video of one squiggling around in the dirt disgusting um but these leaf tail geckos yeah i mean they're they are masters of camouflage they look like leaves and yeah, the authors of this paper found this new species along with the help of their field assistants while searching in trees at night in the Murahehi Massif. And yeah, saw the species, collected a couple, did some good genetics work and discovered it was more than 14% different from other species based on the five or so genes they looked at. And so, yeah, it gets a name and that name is Europlatris finner. Why am I saying it like that? Europlatus. I have no idea. Europlatus finaritra. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. They're sort of filling in some of the gaps of the Europlatus uh, 
like people have known that there's sort of candidate species hidden in there and this is this is filling in one of those gaps rather nicely precisely and uh I love the scientific name, Phineritra, which is a Malagasy word for special greetings, but also means healthy and happy. And they called it that because it, they were so delighted to find it and describe it because it's huge. It's a big species of Europlatus and it's, as they say, splendid, which I agree with. It absolutely is. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's from a clade of generally small sized leaf tailed geckos. This one's massive. And if people are familiar with Europlatus fantasticus, which is my personal favourite, uh, it's basically just a bigger version of that. But it's more closely related to Europlatus ebonawi. It just looks like fantasticus, which is the satanic leaf-tailed gecko. Well, I think you've got to be careful with saying that it's more closely related to ebonawi, don't you? Because isn't the whole ebonawi thing what everything's called prior to it being properly described like ebonawi is the name that was synonymous across a whole bunch of them uh yeah but i mean it's in it's nested in that little group and i think ebonawi is always going to be a species of within that little group well i just wonder whether ebonawi will end up being a different one of the ebonawi groups oh i see okay so it might be that it's not closely related to it. yeah okay so it could... I, I i don't know I, I just feel like that's because there are still more candidate species there I don't know which of those candidate species will remain ebonari compared to something new. <laughs> yeah, no, you make a good point. So what I should I think, say is... Yeah, I don't know where the type, the the, the uh, holotype for ebonari is. Yeah, no, you're right. So basically, it's most closely related to what we currently call ebonari, but it might change. So basically, don't, don't think of it as most closely related to anything. <laughs> because you'll only, you'll only feel a fool when yeah. it changes. But if you want to look at the uh, sort of little phylogeny, you can. And uh, currently it's nested as a sister taxon to uh, Ebonawi. Anyway, it's distribution. Uh, Maro- okay. Mehra- can you, how am I, do you think Marohehi is right? What would be the alternative? Saying them with hard J's? Yeah, no one says hard J's. I would be surprised if they were hard J's, but at the same time, eh. Is that just a sort of bringing Spanish-esque pronunciation into somewhere that hasn't had much Spanish influence? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm a bit unsighted on that, to be honest. For God's sake, it's so hard to work out how things are pronounced. This is why I never do it. There's nowhere, on the, the internet. Now, There's nowhere on the internet that you no. can find out how to pronounce it. So I'm just going to say Marahehi and hope it's right. If I'm wrong, yeah. correct us, please. I mean, um, I mean, if Mark Schertz listens to this, he'll tell us sure mm. yep okay so specimens of this new species which is Europlatus phineritra came from altitudes of 450 to 845 meters above sea level so quite high up there and they seem to prefer closed canopy humid forest often with thick understory and ferns one of them was actually hanging around near Europlatus lineatus so they occur sympatrically and uh, the authors reckon that it should be classified as endangered because there's illegal logging activity and its extent of occurrence is less than 500 kilometers squared. So it needs sort of keeping an eye on. Yeah. Yeah, they went into some quite interesting sort of, um, just sort of spitballing really about um, what their tail might be used for. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up. I, I thought that was interesting too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, did you watch the video? I certainly had? did watch the video. Yeah. 
It's good, huh? Yeah, it was cool. So that was a video. Yeah, it's in the show notes. Yes. So that was a video of uh, Europlatus fantasticus, which is the species that this one closely resembles, in captivity. And um, yeah, the male was like wiggling its tail around prior to mating with a female, kind of like flapping it up and down, a little bit side to side. And uh, yeah, whether or not it piques the female's interest is kind of hard to say because he just kind of like jumps on her. But um, what they say, they kind of postulate in this paper that the the tail, which is obviously part of their camouflage because it, it literally looks like a leaf, even down to like the veins on the leaf and the little bit down the middle. Um, but the idea they have is that it might be under a dual selection pressure, both sexual and for camouflage. So it's kind of like showing off to the females that it has a nice tail within the constraints of its tail looking like a leaf. And so they don't have any evidence for that, but I think it's a really cool idea that this kind of like dual purpose occasionally... Well, they 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 have some evidence, I would say, because there's, they, they mentioned the polophyly of it, of the sort of large leafy tail look. So it's not like all of one clade has large tails and all of one clade have smaller, different leaves or something. So I think that's a nice bit of, you know, they say that's a decent amount of, or suggests that the morphological evolution is quite dynamic and changeable. So that, I think, supports all of that, all in a nice wrapped up little package, because sexual selection and things like that is going to be occurring on a species-by-species stuff that's potentially less likely to be ancestral. Hmm. Whereas if it was pure, pure camouflage, I think there would just be fewer ideal situations. Well, because it's... So, so because it's sort of not consistently distributed in the clade, yeah? Wait, what, the leafy tail? The leafy tail, yeah. It's, it's poly... It's all mixed up, right? They all have leafy tails, though. It doesn't... No, they don't all have leafy tails. Some have larger leafy tails, some have smaller leafy tails, and one of them doesn't even have a leafy tail. Right. Or doesn't look like leaves. Okay. Uh, Kelly Rambo, if you say it like that. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good name. <laughs> so, in that sense, different sizes and stuff on tails is on a species-by-species thing. It doesn't appear to be particularly conserved with closely related species, suggesting quite a short time scale. Or as they call it, dynamic morphological evolution. Okay, so they've all got differently sized and shaped leafy tails. Right. And they're, and they're mixed up. So ones that are closely related could have very different tails. Whereas ones distantly related could have very similar tails. Yeah, okay. The tails aren't a good indication of relatedness. Sure. Is what they're getting at. That doesn't necessarily... Um, well... But that doesn't necessarily. I mean, to me, that's that's going to be suggesting species level selection, as opposed to some overarching ancestral conserved trait. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but is that enough evidence to say that it's both sexual selection and crypsis? I just feel like sexual selection is going to be a quicker turnaround as a selective pressure compared to something camouflage like. I think camouflage is going to produce a selective pressure which is more stable over time and requires less um, dynamicism to keep up with. That's my feeling on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of on the fence still because uh, it almost certainly is both of those things. But I don't know. How long have they been apart from each other, these different species? It could be a really long time. 
like really millions, that's, millions of yeah, views. Yeah, yeah, that's, so, that's true. Like That's true. Like, uh, in that case, I don't think it's that big of a stretch to think that they just got differently shaped leafy tails based on the leaves of the trees they most commonly inhabit. And then the tail is waved irrespective. I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't really know what kind of evidence you have to gather to prove a point like that. Maybe, I'm not sure. I really don't. Well. How do you, Yeah. how do you, I suppose you could do, I suppose you'd need to do, or you could do some experiments with like sexual s- success based on different tail types and that would solve it. Like do bigger tails. I think that's that's exactly what advantage. they say. Yeah. Um, they say some of them don't regrow. So you could look at uh, mating success between individuals with and without tails. That's exactly what they suggest. Uh, that's a bit too dramatic for my that's... taste, though, because obviously, like that doesn't really yeah. show that the. I mean that. I mean that's just like, which is more attractive: the really horribly disfigured lizard or the lizard that's as you expect it to be. That's true. I suppose it depends how frequently they lose their tail in the wild. If it's super frequent in the wild, then you would. Yeah, yeah. Okay, there's there's some stuff going on there, isn't there? There's some yeah. Some I don't know difficulty. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah. I think also from what I saw of that video, a little bit of tail waving goes goes on, and then the male just kind of like seemingly grabs hold of the female and goes for it. So it's like, will it have that much effect? I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, I think the, I think the bit was just. The non-conserved nature of the tail sizes is really, really interesting. Mm, yeah, it for and sure. a really nice. It seems like a really nice study clay to look at something like that, because you've got the really nice geographical isolation between them. You've got that, and you've got these really nice, distinguishable tail sort of shapes. Like it just feels like a very easily measurable thing for sexual selection. Like okay, surface area of tail, width of tail, tail movement, or, or things like that it just seems nicely pared down yeah and tackleable super cool yeah 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 super cool yeah it's cool they're i mean they're just fantastic looking little lizards and the other thing that's interesting about them beyond their tail is this dark red oral mucosa which is another kind of mystery um as to why when they open their mouths it's really dark red it's quite striking which is another mystery but it it may be that it's used as part of their mouth gaping threat display or in communication with other geckos um, the authors make the point that they can see well at night, and so despite being nocturnal, they might be making their they might be using their mouths to make points through the night to each other, like gape, whatever. Um, but I think it's probably yeah. more likely a threat display because they do gape apparently when you catch them. It's it's similar to chameleons and stuff, is it not? You'd think so, wouldn't you? Um, yeah, yeah, and I mean. I think it's just sort of like, watch out, I've got a mouth. It's this big. Yeah, and they're also adorable when they have their little mouths open. Yeah, they do. They look cute. When they bite you, it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's the promise behind the threat display, isn't it? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, learn that. I can it. open my mouth. I can damn well close it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is the newly described species Europlatus finaritra. Yeah, I did want to bring up the, the little point on... On on the pet trade stuff, yes. Um, I I really appreciated sort of describing how difficult it potentially could be for people trying to regulate trade to deal with this new species because it looks so similar to other Europlatus. Um, 
and with the potential that they may already be in the pet trade, it's just they have been mislabeled as Europlatus, um What is it? Giant. What's the other one? Oh yeah, they 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 may have been called Fantasticus Giant there because they're go, big. They look yeah. like big Fantasticus. Yeah. Right, which is that's that's fascinating to me that it's sort of a species that's been around and sort of potentially been in the trade, and and yet has gone. I, well, I guess I guess undescribed. I mean, it was it's described. It was just described as something else, and people realised there was a difference because they were big, but just uh, not just how different they were. And this whole idea of okay, maybe they've been in the trade, and that's why people have had difficulties breeding stuff is because they've actually got different species. Yeah, you just don't know it. Yeah, stuff like that. Very intriguing, sort of. I mean, it it really just shows the complexity of ecological systems outside of captivity are nothing to be sniffed at and if you don't know what's in the wild good luck trying to work with it in in other scenarios yeah yeah and i think their suggestion that um you need to make sure that things are appropriately labeled with their area of collection when if you if you're going to export them Mm. is quite good yes 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 because i mean i I, i'm amazed that that's not standard already oh yeah but then you've got to remember like the avenues that some of these things come through aren't always, you know, they're just... I mean, we did that paper, didn't we, on uh, the livelihoods of people I, in Madagascar who were collecting. Yeah, but, you know, when you're setting the rules for this sort of stuff, you've got to set them completely. Oh, yeah. Like, there's no point doing a half, half-baked half case. I, I I don't know. I think, I think their suggestion's absolutely spot on. Yeah. I don't think it's too much to ask. And if you can't show that sort of... Uh, what do they call it for antiques? Provenance. Uh, provenance with your animals. Well, then, sorry, mate. <laughs> Try again. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, or better yet, don't. And I think, uh, yeah, the the benefits of to everyone, like, there's really no case for not labelling stuff because, you know, the end user isn't going to be pleased with something that isn't producing. And, you know, if you're going to have you want to have a, a stock of animals anywhere there's no point interbreeding them with each other and making mutts and them just not doing mess. anything yeah. yeah there's pointless so yeah definitely yeah uh, yeah i mean until we can sort of have some kind of little machine which probably isn't that far away that can bar you know tell you what something is in a flash um yeah tell make sure they're labeled as to where they came from yeah i mean especially with the pet trade stuff all it once they're in the trade and they're out of the country, that information is never going to come up. If you do get uh, hybrids and all sorts of mess, I mean, no one's going to be able to trace that back without some sort of cheap DNA thing yeah. done to animals already in the trade. So if you miss your opportunity at the very beginning and you don't keep track of what they're breeding with and how that sort of those, how it goes on into the trade, well, then you're, then you're stuck. Yeah. yeah, especially as like in conservation institutions are likely getting their stuff from the same sources so the kind of implications of mislabeling stuff are really far-reaching and yeah it's just bad 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 basically so yeah no it was cool i thought that was interesting as well really really appreciated their comment on the geolocation stuff because i mean if there's one thing we're hurting for in in tropical regions it's just baseline geographic information of this species occurs here if you can get that via trade data or via like opportunistic observations from people and photographs you name it, having that information is so important. And the sooner we get it, the better. Because the later we get it, the more it looks like that species was never in certain areas because it's already gone. So I'm 
very keen for just better geolocation information. I realise geolocation is a stupid term, which I seem to have made up and written down, which doesn't mean anything. Just location data. That's all I'm getting at. But anyway, so... We'll move on. Yeah, that's new species. Um, so yeah, shout out to Mark Schertz, who uh, is on Squamates pod. He's one of the authors. Be remiss not to mention him. Mm. If you've Mark, yeah. if you've listened to this and we've done any disservice or if you would like to weigh in, get in touch. Um, yeah. <laughs> specifically my chat about leafy tails i think there's some serious yeah. errors in there and well i'm not saying there's errors i'm just saying like the, oh, the first time you were talking about it i was like what's he talking about and then i don't know i was also making some probably stupid comments uh evolutionary <laughs> development stuff not my forte at all i just want to know i just like snakes you know but yeah <laughs> let's just let's just carry okay, on okay so that's it that's it, Hawaiian geckos. Thanks again to Philip Iovino for suggesting that. If you want to be a patron, you can become one. Go to patreon.com slash herbhighlights. On that note, we have a new Patreon. So uh, big up Kim Mayuski. Um, Thank you very much indeed. And uh, perhaps we'll be having an episode of your choosing soon. Yeah, thank you very much. Any other business? Yes. Well, uh, I wanted to talk about Ross McGibbon's new calendar. Uh, so Ross is a wildlife photographer out in Australia, um, and his, I mean, his photography is like nothing less than exceptional. Um, yeah, we. I just saw, he just posted a really nice one, well, really nice image, it's quite a grim image, but a really nice, I, I really Oh, the like monitor really lizard. Um, the monitor lizard, dead on the road, yeah, so setting up an initial flash to illuminate the monitor lizard, then did the whole light trails of car going by, or over, in that case with a long exposure really really nice yeah really uh fun multiple exposure thing the man knows his way around a picture machine and yeah um yeah so he does a calendar every year uh and there's a bit of a backstory behind it actually so back in 2017 he was bitten by a juvenile mulga snake which is sudecus australis while on a photography trip to the great victoria desert and when he was bitten by this very venomous snake he was 1000 kilometers from anti-venom the royal flying doctor service of australia flew out in a helicopter or i don't know if it was a helicopter why am i saying helicopter okay <laughs> and the RF- it was one of those flying machines yeah, the rfds they flew out in a flying yeah, machine the, keep it nice and broad yeah the rfds which is the royal flying doctor service of australia flew out in a flying machine and they collected him flew him back to perth and he got the medical care which was i assume pretty damn urgent and since then he's been running this calendar uh, it's been three years and 25% of the proceeds go to the RFDS kind of give back. And um, he's raised nice. he's raised tons of money. He's raised like, you know, £4,000 in total over the three years. Um, and so, yeah, it's a good good initiative. Uh, and I mean, the, the photos are incredible. If you're into herpetology, which presumably you are, as you've got to over an hour in this podcast. Um, yeah, they're just amazing images of various snakes. Yeah. Every year he puts out all his pictures and then his Facebook uh, community vote on which ones they want to go in there. You can check him out. Um, I'll share the link in the show notes and also we'll um, tweet it and we'll also uh, Facebook it out as well. So yeah, check it out. And uh, he does do global shipping. He's in Australia, so it'll be cheaper if you're in Australia, but it's possible to get them elsewhere in the world as well. So yeah, check him out. Yeah, really, really awesome stuff. Really awesome stuff. 
And you wanted to talk about Mangshan Pit Vipers, didn't you? Yes, um, I did. Um, although I've forgotten who told us that we should be talking about these guys. It was Miles Masterson. Okay, Miles got in touch. Yes, of course, because it was it was his his chosen topic. We were having a big chat about. Okay, I wonder if this this pattern of smaller species being in higher elevation carries across the whole world for vipers. Not just North and South America. Yes, for vipers specifically. And we were sort of, yeah, yeah, maybe maybe it's working nicely in Asia. But there's a really nice counterexample, which is the Mangshan pit viper from China. Is it southern China? Southern China. Yes, southern China. And these guys get pretty big. Three to five kilos and like six feet or 200 centimeters. Big, big pit vipers. Chunky. But also montane. Mm-hmm. So sort of bucking the trend quite nicely. But that being said, you know, it's never going to be a perfect trend. So it's not a deal breaker. But it's nice that we've got this sort of counter counter example. Yeah, big giant pit Keeps viper. Keeps you on your toes, right? Keeps you thinking. Exactly. They're also beautiful. So that would actually conform to Bergman's rule. <laughs> Yeah, that that specific species, <laughs> maybe. But again, you don't even know that. You don't know if the within species variation actually follows on. True. If you cherry picked the vipers you were looking at, then yes, potentially. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so thanks, Miles. Good point. Well made. Um, some yeah, there are some counter arguments to vipers getting smaller in Asia as we go to higher altitude. So yeah, thanks. And if anyone else has any corrections based on this or another episode you've listened to, even if it's like years ago, get in touch. We'd like to hear if we get things wrong. Yes. We'd like to go back. So, yeah, um, I think that all remains all that remains to be said is you can get in touch with us, herphighlights at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at herphighlights, and you can find us on Facebook as well. Yeah. I, I think we can just say thank you for listening and thank you for people donating to the show to keep it going. Yep, love it. Like, super appreciated. Super, super appreciated. Cool, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Isn't an oxymoron where something sounds like what it is? Oh, that's on about the pier. Oh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>